the Historical Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Nichols, and I have had a very eventful month since the last time that I put out a recording, and I feel so bad that I haven't put one out since then, uh, since the Egyptians, Egyptian Curses episode. And the reason for that is that we've experienced a death in the family. My grandmother passed away. And that was really difficult for the whole family to deal with. So we've kind of taken some time off. Um, and then things have just been very, very hectic in my life. So hopefully at some point it will calm down and I can go back to at least uh, bi-monthly episodes. That would be really nice. I did have a side note planned that was going to be really kind of gory, to be honest, very gory. Um, and I'm still working on that one because finding the historical sources to back up some of the claims that you hear about with this one, this is a kind of an urban legend, has been a little bit difficult. But I'm sure that it'll come up at some point. <laughs> um, right now, or today, we are going to visit the lovely country of Australia. I have a friend from Australia slash listener. Hello, Talia, um, who is from Australia and just recently moved back there. And I'm super jealous because every picture that she posts looks so cool. Um, and also Australia is just stunningly gorgeous. I mean, dream vacation destination for me. Um, but what we're talking about today is not necessarily a place that you want to visit. Although the city's there, you would, just not necessarily um, this place. So today's subject is the Ararat, or Airedale, Lunatic Asylum. It is located two hours outside of Melbourne in the Australian state of Victoria, and it lies in a sprawling Italianate-type compound with really beautiful, lush greenery and pretty facades. If you didn't know this was an asylum and you look it up online, you might think it's a government building or like a really nice rich person's compound or something. I don't know how rich people live, but I mean, it looks like it would be a great place for that, right? So it's known as the Ararat Lunatic Asylum. And it was kind of known as that because it resides or it's situated in a small town outside of Melbourne uh, named Ararat, but it's actually called Airedale. And Airedale was constructed in 1864 to give relief to the criminal system. Lunatics or the mentally ill were crowding the state's jails and reform was called for to separate those who were committing crimes due to insanity from those committing petty crimes. Construction began in 1864, with the hospital taking in patients as early as 1865, while construction of the guardhouses was still taking place. It comprised of 64 buildings, situated on over 40 hectares of land, and during its height, housed over 1,000 patients. It was the first mental hospital of a planned three including Beechworth and Kew Asylums that would join it later on as sister facilities. And Beechworth, by the way, is another one of those asylums that we might cover because it is just another place that is massively haunted. And on that note, I take it back. I am pretty sure that you would want to visit this uh, asylum, especially if you are a fan of this show, because it is one of the most haunted locations in Australia, which is why we're covering it. And they do offer tours of both Airedale Asylum as well as J Ward, which we'll talk about here in a second as to what that is. 
So definitely a place to drop by. But let's get on with the story. So while Aradale was built to house the criminally insane, it also housed those with intellectual handicaps. People with postpartum depression, Down syndrome, or epilepsy were also housed in the facility. Thankfully, they were not after a while anyway, because at first they were, but they weren't after a while held with those that were criminally insane. (laughs) The place that held Victoria's most dangerous patients was called J Ward, and it was indeed dangerous. It was originally opened in October of 1861, and at that point it was known as the Ararat County Jail, and that is G-A-O-L, so I hope I'm saying it correctly, Um, but Ararat County Jail, and it housed all levels of criminals, from petty thieves to murderers, and speaking of murderers, it also conducted its own executions, which is not out of place for the time. The first execution was of Andrew Veer, who was hanged for the murder of Amos Cheel in January of 1869, followed by two more murderers, Robert Francis Burns and Henry Morgan. After the Victorian gold rush ushered in prosperity and wealth to the region, they found that a county jail wasn't needed. So in December of 1886, it became part of Airedale and was renamed J Ward. And let's take a moment to consider that. Once opportunity came into the region, the crime level went down so low as to abolish the existing county jail. Interesting food for thought there. So clearly a lot of the crimes that were being committed in Victoria at this point were crimes of opportunity or of necessity. But I will leave that there and not go into a rant in that. So this doesn't mean that, by the way, guys, that crime totally diminished in this time period, but the crimes of opportunity were few and far between and those could be housed elsewhere. J Ward really wasn't for them anyway. It was really for violent offenders who doctors worried could never be released back into society for fear that they would be harmful. This was sometimes valid and sometimes not. The problem with being mentally insane, or at least declared mentally insane, around this time in Australia, or in most places for that matter, after committing a crime, was that you could easily be deemed insane by a doctor and then put in one of these asylums without a trial of any kind. There were even stories of doctors being paid to make this declaration, especially if a family member was constantly in and out of jail or violent to other family members. Other times you would see a family member put into asylum, whether criminal or not, would be if they had um, homosexual tendencies. That was another big one. Um, it could really be for a lot of different things. I mean, it, it really, it was a travesty at the time. Uh, what could get you declared mentally unfit? But nevertheless, one of the stories that stood out to me was that of a homeless French-Australian man named Charles Fossard, although I'm pretty sure that was changed, or that was changed from Fussard. Um, But nevertheless, it's spelled both ways um, with F-O-S-S-A-R-D in a lot of the Australian articles and then F-O-U-S-S-A-R-D in some of the ones that recognize his uh, French nationality. 
So he was a 21-year-old man who found himself going door-to-door in Skye, which was a little town just outside of Melbourne, begging for food or money. He had been a sailor with the French Navy, and after three years of service, he left the Navy at the Sydney port to find luck in Australia. I'm not sure if he abandoned the Navy or like went AWOL or if it, it was time was just up. It hasn't been really explained too much. But by June of 1903, he hadn't found any work or really any luck in Australia, and he'd been reduced to begging for his meals. One of the houses he went to was that of the elderly William Ford in Skye. Ford had opened the door to hear him out, but refused Hussard any help at all. After that, Charles shot and killed him and then robbed his house. He even took the older man's boots. Two weeks later, after an extensive search for William Ford's killer, Charles was found, still wearing William Ford's boots. He was arrested, interrogated, and then judged insane, which landed him in J-Ward. So again, uh, mention of a trial is not anywhere that I could find, so it looks like he was just interrogated. Someone said he was insane, and that was the end of it. 71 years later, on June 9th, 1974, Charles Fussard died, still housed in J-Ward. 71 years! And I mean, in in that facility, which we'll talk about some of the experiences that that he might have had there, but I mean, I can't even imagine 71 years. Uh, I would say like three quarters of his life, right? And behind, and not necessarily bars, but in a mental health facility, which was definitely imposing. It was not something or a place that you wanted to be. But for 71 years, it's crazy. He is not the only one with a lengthy stay, though. So Bill Wallace had been incarcerated at J-Ward after killing a man over a cigarette in a cafe in 1926. 63 years later, one month before his 108th birthday, he died within the blue granite walls of J-Ward. He was another one who was sentenced without a trial, but on the diagnosis of insanity by two different doctors in 1926. So Bill Wallace would spend the rest of his life in J-Ward because he didn't have an end in sight. And there was a reason for that. At this point, at least in 1926, there was not a court-mandated end date when somebody was declared uh, mentally unfit or declared a lunatic. His sentence was, and this is how they quote, to be held at the governor's pleasure. And I guess the governor forgot or just decided not to deal with it, whatever the case may be. So 63 years, <laughs> he ended up dying there um, without being exonerated or not even just exonerated, just released. Sources from inmates at the time, like the notorious Mark Chopper Reed, who only spent a few months in J-Ward and much later than these men were there, were disgusted by the sights and conditions that inmates were subjected to. And this is what Chopper Reed had to say. His life is interesting. He's another one. But he said, it's a terrible place. There was a bucket of feces in the middle of the room. He said a different word. I'm going to say feces. People slept on a concrete floor. Mealtimes were like the feeding of animals. Some people couldn't have their straight jackets removed. They were that mad. So people still wearing their straight jackets would just dunk their heads into the bowls of food. It was like the Australian cricket team. Harder to get out of than into. I don't 
don't know much about the Australian cricket team or cricket in general, but um, I'm guessing it's bad. <laughs> anyway, some might say, you know, they killed people, so their sentence should be actual life. And I found those comments on a few of the articles that I read. And yeah, I mean, sure, but they're literally housed at a mental hospital, which is a facility by name designed to rehabilitate patients. But on the other hand, some like Gary Webb or Gary David, I'm not sure how his name was supposed to be. He was born Gary David, but anyway, um, they would probably be, or he would probably be a great example of those types who could not at the time be rehabilitated. So Gary David was born in July of 1954 to an alcoholic mother and a pedophile father. Awful. At the age of four, Gary and his siblings were placed in an orphanage. He began committing various small crimes at around 11 years old, including larceny and making general threats. At 13 years old, he was diagnosed as having psychopathic traits, and from 1976 to 1984 was in and out of psychiatric facilities, being diagnosed then with antisocial and narcissistic personality disorders. During his stints at the mental hospitals, he took to self-harming, at times swallowing razor blades, cutting off pieces of his ears, and severing his left nipple. At one point, he cut his genitals, he hammered nails into his feet and hands, and swallowed corrosive liquid. Before 1982, however, he was mostly a danger to himself and just a nuisance to others. But that year would prove the turning point in his on-and-off stays in asylums. During a robbery of a pizza shop, he attempted to murder the pizza shop owner and then drew police into a shootout while trying to escape. He seriously injured the pizza shop owner and two officers who were chasing him down. The news crews that were there, because I, I guess it was like a hostage situation at some point, even captured him running away from the situation, which I think is interesting. So after his capture, he was declared criminally insane and was moved into J-Ward for the next 14 years. While in prison, Gary wrote a manuscript called The Blueprint for Urban Warfare. This manuscript detailed all of the atrocities that he would commit once he was let out of J-Ward. These included rather macabre ideas like filling vending machines with people's fingers, toes, and other appendages that would be small enough to be vendable, and filling drink dispensing machines with blood. Those were creative and also super unlikely to happen, but what was likely to happen were the many bombings and terrorist attacks he had planned for the government buildings of Australia. It was for this reason that the Victorian government felt it necessary to create legislation that would keep a dangerous prisoner like Gary David away from the general public. And while Gary was incredibly intelligent and analytical, he was really unable to handle minor frustrations and setbacks, and often responded to them with violence and self-mutilation. On June 11th, 1993, he swallowed razor blades, which led to his suicide in J. Ward at 38 years old. His story really makes me sad, mostly because out of his 38 years, only four were spent outside of the Australian system. 
um, he had really been in and out for 34 years of his life. So I'm sure that it was absolutely necessary. It sounds absolutely necessary to have kept him incarcerated in his early or sorry, later years. But I mean, given his background, his upbringing, who knows what happened in the foster care system. And I, I mean, I wonder if anything could have been done early on to help him. I mean, I'm sure we've made some amazing strides in mental health um, and in medication and since this time, but it's, it's a thing that makes you wonder. It's just very sad. Um, his whole story, but suicide was not just for the prisoners of J ward in 1912, the presiding superintendent of the Aridale asylum, Dr. William L. Mullen committed suicide by drinking prussic acid or hydrogen cyanide at 51 years of age. It's unclear to this day why he did that, because he left no note, but the superintendent's office is considered to be haunted. Some people say that they taste an acidic or a bitter taste while walking in it or past it. And prussic acid is said to taste metallic, but it's also known as bitter almonds, and it's used to make almond extract. It just cannot be ingested or used in anything while it's not in its processed form. So I'm wondering, you know, is it bitter? I mean, it could be bitter. Um, Acidic, who knows? I don't know. I think people hear about these stories sometimes, and then when they go, they have this um, thought in their head, like I'm going to taste something when I walk by. And of course, you know, they have that taste because their mind kind of tricks them into seeing that or, or tasting it. Who knows? Um, but I hope that nothing bad happens with prussic acid and with anybody I know. Um, because I had to Google what prussic acid tastes like, what hydrogen cyanide tastes like. So I'm sure I'm on some sort of list right now because of that. But I'm sure I'm on lists for all the other research I do for some of these stories, but that one just made me laugh a little bit. (laughs) Patient abuses were also incredibly common, and deaths at the asylum occurred on a daily basis, on average around 100 a day. 100 a day. In its 130-year history, Airedale actually saw about 13,000 deaths. And as we've seen, it wasn't just patients who died, it was also doctors, nurses, and other staff. Some, like Bill Wallace and Charles Fossard, died of old age, and others died like Gary David and Dr. William Mullen of suicide. Often, the first reaction staff had to patients that were having episodes or mental breaks would be to put them in a straitjacket. If the straitjacket wasn't enough to subdue them, they were then put into an isolation box, also described as a cage. Should that still not prove enough, or they were harming themselves too much in the box or cage, they would then be put into sacks that restricted all of their movement. Electroshock therapy was still was still in its early days when Aridel began its operations and was often used without muscle relaxers or any of the modern developments to make it truly helpful. Leucotomies, similar to lobotomies, were also still being performed. These procedures included surgically cutting the white nerve fibers within the brain, usually due to their ages. Children were excluded from this procedure, but this was not the case at Aridale. Many, many abuses went unreported, and when they were reported, they weren't paid enough attention to, 
or they were just simply swept under the rug. For example, one intellectually disabled patient would trade sex for cigarettes and other items from staff and patients. She was known as the prostitute of the Aradell complex. There was a large amount of evidence confirming that staff and residents alike were unable to manage patients' rights to proper sexual health practices, menstrual management, and sexual relationships. Sexual abuse was rampant, both in men and women, by staff and patients alike. There were attempts at reform. In 1952, Dr. Eric Cunningham Dax was appointed as chairman of Victoria's Mental Hygiene Authority. He saw that morale was incredibly low at all of the mental institutions and sought to develop a four-point plan that would address issues and give staff an increase in pay to attract a higher quality employee. That being said, after some time, the cases of rape, physical assault, bestiality, and theft ran rampant at Aradell Lunatic Asylum. It was clear that change had to occur. Now, for those of you that heard me say bestiality just now, and we're like, what? Where did they even get beasts? Um, Aradell was designed to be like a, a town within a town. So there were animals on the property that they could take care of. There was a working farm. So that's really where that came from. And I had to read over what Aradell or the buildings that Aradell consisted of because I was a little surprised at that myself. But nevertheless, <laughs> in 1991, in 1991, Health Department Victoria Task Force was created to investigate the claims of abuse and lack of care within Victoria's mental health institutions. They found that while some claims lacked evidence and were likely to be false, the vast majority of complaints by patients and staff had merit. Due to this, Victoria led the charge in Australia to deinstitutionalize its asylums. It had begun with Q Asylum in 1988, and then J Ward was closed down in 1992, with Aradell following in 1994. Patients were moved to more modern facilities that could better address their issues, but the jobs that supported the Ararat community just vanished, leaving a bitter taste for those families. And it's still something that you, you'll see on websites where they don't think that Ararat should have closed. But it had to. Something had to happen. After closing, the Aradell complex was leased by the Victorian government to Melbourne Polytechnics, and it's being used now as a training grounds for search and rescue dogs a winery, a vineyard, and a four-hectare lavender farm. After some time, it became apparent that some people weren't ready to leave the grounds. A nurse, known for her soft voice and clicking heels echoing down the corridors, still haunts the woman's wing, checking on her long-passed-away patients. Visitors report hearing a soft voice calling out to someone and disembodied heels walking down the hall. Some even say that Nurse Carrie watches those touring her wing from a particular room. And that is all over the Facebook for Aradale tour Ghost Tours, that she is the most seen apparition. George Leondu, a dangerous and delusional inmate of J Ward, was placed there in the 1950s after murdering a man for making homosexual advances towards him. He suffered from extreme paranoia, and it was hard for staff to care for him when he'd attack them. That being said, often mean-spirited male staff members would make advances towards him to get him to react. In 
He's one of the possible ghosts haunting Jay Ward, where visitors have felt cold spots, pushing, scratching, and even being bitten. And this is true of the men's and women's wards all over Airedale. Some visitors have even reported nausea, strange noises, phantom smells, and cell phone interference. Now, for those of you who want to visit this imposing and massive complex, you can take tours with Erie Tours, Airedale Ghost Tours, and Friends of J Ward, who all have active Facebook pages that you can message and groups that you can join. Thank you to everyone listening today. I hope I did Airedale Lunatic Asylum justice, and we might stick around Australia for another episode in the future because... There's a lot of stories that aren't widely told, and I'd love to research them to get more information because there are some really exciting things. Um, Thank you all for the last part of the show for putting up with the children's music that's in the background. I have the noise gate on, so I'm not sure if y'all can hear it, but I'm I'm 99% sure that it's coming through. I can barely hear it on my end, but um, it's... If some of y'all are paying attention to my Instagram, I have lost a lot of the time alone that I had to record the show. So there will be some episodes going forward where you have some background noise, but hopefully it won't be too bad. All right. As always, please rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts from. We're on Google and Amazon too and find me on Instagram. I'm at historical paranormal and I'm a big fan of story suggestions and general hellos, you know? (laughs) So you guys have a great week. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you soon.